0: I think fairy tales are very interesting. I think that they can tell us a lot. And what I think tells us even more is what we've done to them.
1: But one evening, she took herself by the cliff top path all the way up to the place where the cunning woman lived, just outside their village. And she said, as she entered that small hut, um, ''My mum is having a lot of trouble sleeping. ''Do you have a charm, a spell?'' that might ease her to sleep.
2: So I was very into fairy tales as a kid. I liked how straightforward it was. I think when you become an adult that those stories don't kind of make as much sense to you. And this was just one of the many occasions that I found in in adult life that the sort of fairy tale ending you're looking for doesn't actually turn out.
3: And I should just say before I start, not all fairy tales have happy endings. So don't sue me, you were warned. Anyone who thinks they can't go, there's the door, there's the bar, I won't take it personally.
4: Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts, we've got comedians, storytellers, musicians, spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears and we're taking a break from our live shows until February 2015 so to fill in the gap on the podcast we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think stand-up tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years today's episode is volume eight tragic fairy tales and it pretty much does what it says on the tin so it's a collection of performances about fairy tales over the years since stand-up tragedy began We've had lots of fairy tales told on our stage. There's, I think, quite a strong link between tragedy and fairy tales. Many fairy tales, at least originally, were very tragic. Just because something is about or for children doesn't mean that it doesn't have darkness and sadness within it. In fact, I think kids understand darkness and sadness very well in lots of ways if you're a fairy tale fan come along to tragic winter on the 28th of february where our first act will be dedicated to tragic fairy tales and we'll have three different performers bringing their idea of what tragic fairy tales are to our stage live so come along to the hackney attic and see that. That's the first of three acts of tragedy. Our second act is going to be curated by Alice Bell, and it's going to be tragic climate, looking at the more wintry aspects of climate change. And then our last act is going to be tragic death. And the three really brilliant performers who will be giving you their take on tragic death are Izzy Lawrence, Jack Rook, and Amy McAllister. So it's going to be a really great night. £5 pounds in advance £7 pounds on the door tickets available from the Hackney Attic doors open 7.30 and the performances should be over by half past 10 and if you want to stay and do some tragic dancing you are very welcome to do so into the late hours of the night so hopefully see you there for some live tragedy but until then let's have some pre-recorded tragedy from the point of view of preparing yourselves to listen to today's episode actually the topics covered whilst being dark and sinister and sad and all of the things that fairy tales could be there's less of a content though a less strong content though on today's episode than a usual episode which is nice and means that we can relax a little bit more and maybe have even more ears listening to today's show so Prepare yourself for fairy tales, prepare yourself for tragedy, sit back, relax. Here comes an hour or so of tragic fairy tales. First up we have Lucy Ayrton performing some of her lullabies to make children cry back in 2013 at The Dog star in Brixton. Lucy is a performance poet, a writer and a musician from Oxford. You can find out more about her at www.lucyairton.co.uk, and you can follow her at Lucy Ayrton on Twitter.
0: I haven't told you yet, and I won't. but it's only a matter of time because I talk in my sleep. I always have should have said something sooner but I've been really busy lately making my own clothes and trying not to be a disappointment I've been trying to wear skirts more and flirt less and do things that hurt less and be quieter and prior to this conversation I was doing fine but it was only a matter of time because I've always been the kind of girl who thinks a lot about what might be an acceptable level of deceit, the kind of girl who feels guilty about feeling guilty about how much she eats, the kind of girl to who herbal tea and tequila both taste exactly the same. (laughs) They both taste of defeat. The kind of girl who's been really busy lately doing the morning yoga and trying not to be a disappointment and trying not to say that sometimes I want to eat less apples and more cake. Sometimes I want to take the seventh shot of Calvados and drink it down and let the frown melt off my face and drip onto the dance floor. Sometimes I want more than me. Sometimes I want to dance until my head spins and not push boys away when they tell me about what could be. Sometimes I want to let me be lost. And I haven't told you that, but it's only a matter of time because I talk in my sleep and I've been dreaming about dragons and towers and knights and gingerbread houses and roses and spells. I've been dreaming about forests. And dark paths and wolves. I've been dreaming about being lost and I've been not wanting to pull myself back into the day, and I didn't want to say any of this to you. I've been really busy lately, eating organic rice cakes and trying not to be a disappointment, but I can't. They're not real cake. <laughs> And for your sake, I've been not following breadcrumb trails, but I can't not wonder where they lead. I can't stop reading fairy tales. I won't stop believing in magic. I haven't told you yet that sometime you'll need to let me be lost. Thank you. Thank you very much, um... So, uh, both the poems that I'm reading tonight come from um, my show and pamphlet, um, Lullabies to Make Your Children Cry. You can buy it um, from me <laughs> at the break um, for the very discount price of £3. Makes a really good present for someone that you don't particularly like. <laughs> um, um, my pamphlet and show um, and a lot of my work uh, about fairy tales, um, as Dave said, I think fairy tales are very interesting. Um, I think that they can tell us a lot. And what I think tells us even more is what we've done to them. Um, I've been looking at um, The Little Mermaid recently. We all know The Little Mermaid, right? You know, under the sea. Um, <laughs> Cute. Um, I was looking into the original version of it. Um, This isn't even a joke. Look out on my YouTube channel in the next few weeks. I'm going to be doing an acoustic version of the song Under the Sea with a bubble machine. Um, So that's going to be fun. Unfortunately, the original story does not have any bubble machines. It does not even have a singing crab. Um, And it doesn't have Ariel getting married to the prince. Because in the original version, like the Disney version, she can't talk. So he can't fall in love with her. What happens is she washes up on the sand, naked and mutilated in front of him. And he takes pity on her and brings her into his household. Um, And he falls in love with another woman, a woman who can talk. And he gets married to her and he gives her the Little Mermaid as a wedding present. The story doesn't even end there. Um, And then all of the Little Mermaid sisters um, rise up from the sea because the wedding is on a boat just to, like, literally rub salt into the wound. (laughs) The wedding is on a boat not far from her mer-palace. So all of her sisters rise out of the waves and they're all bald and they've got this massive knife. I say, we went to see the sea witch and we sold her our hair so that we could buy you this knife because, yay, if you stab your true love in the heart before daybreak, you can turn back into a mermaid, yay! And they throw it to her and swim back under the waves and the little mermaid takes the knife and goes and looks down at the man she loves and his wife lying there in each other's arms and she can't do it. So she goes back out onto the deck, and just as the sun is cresting, she throws the knife into the waves, and as she does show, she dissolves into sea foam. Which, initially, I thought was less appropriate to tell children than the Disney version. Um, but then I thought about it again. Um, and I thought, actually, if I want to be posing the question to my little girl, if I want to be saying, is it a good idea to give up your family, your life, everything you know, your voice and your physical shape. Is it a good idea to do that because you saw a boy that you fancied? (laughs) I feel like maybe the answer that I want to be offering to that is no. (laughs) Um so this um this is another of um the old and old non disnified um fairy tales. This one was written in medieval France, and um it's very much about the kind of concerns of the time um this um this story and the kind of poems that go with it are sort of credited of being the first of um the form that was known as courtly love, which went on um to be what we know as romance um but I wanted to do it tonight because it is. It is a tragedy, and um, that's always made a lot of sense to me because I think that, you know, kind of excluding sea witches, um, falling in love is one of the most dangerous things and tragic things that can happen to you. Um, So this is my poem about it. Um, It's called The Nightingale. There was once a little girl... Or not a girl, a lady, and when she reached a certain age, she... Her father gave her to marry. And the night was nice enough, you know, all right, but not really the kind to make the middle of the night bright for her, not really right for her, just okay. Okay. Not long after her wedding day The lady let her husband stay in bed While she fled out to the balcony to watch the sunset And it was there she met with The other knight And she knew straight off The knight next door was the one that she was looking for This knight was unlike anyone that she had ever met before Her feelings were so clear that they were written out in semaphore They could leave her breathless With a head tilt and a metaphor She knew for sure This was it I'd let you spread your wings I'd end your suffering I'd give you anything I'd sing Until my very last breath stopped But these two balconies they stood on didn't touch There was just a little bit too much space between them For a handhold or a kiss They were about this far apart Close enough to throw a gift to, she was still too far from her other knight's heart, so they started the sweetest affair. Her here, them there, both of them aware of her husband. And the nights grew warmer, and the days grew sweeter, and her love would meet her every night. And she'd gaze at the maze of her knight's face in the moonlight, and dream of a time when her love could hold her tight. I'd let you spread your wings... I'd end your suffering I'd give you anything I'd sing Until my very last breath stopped But as the summer came to bloom The brightness of the moon fell on the lady's husband's face And he woke And realised she wasn't in her place He saw the empty pillow still pressed to the shape of her head And strewn with the long loose hair she'd shed Highlighted by a moonbeam The worst sight he'd ever seen when she came back to bed, he said to her, where were you even though he knew? And his heart split into two bits, but what could he do? She said, there was a nightingale, darling, on the balcony, can't you see? But he couldn't. She said, he's so near, can't you hear? Can't you hear him sing? I'd let you spread your wings, I'd end your suffering, I'd give you anything, I'd sing. Until my very last breath stopped And he said, no, I can't And he rolled over, but he didn't sleep Every night that week, he stayed awake For the sake of his wife and hearing the words she spake to the other night But she didn't know So she'd still go out into the dark to tend to the spark of her and her new love And they would be whispering and laughing and thrown kisses But neither of them knew that these weren't just near misses That they were caught One day the lady was sitting all sweet with her needlework when her husband came in with a smile and a bird in his hand and because she didn't know what he had planned she said, darling, for me and he said, yes, my pretty, want to see and he opened his hands up just enough for a nightingale's head to pop out and sing I'd end your suffering I'd give you anything I'd sing Until my very last breath stopped The lady, all guilt and happiness, reached out and ran her fingers along the nightingale's breast, but he pressed his hands into the creature's neck. And the lady prayed he'd let the nightingale go, but no. He snapped its neck, and he looked at the lady and said, What did you expect? Did you think I'd let anything get between my lady and her good night's good night's sleep? And as he threw the bird down and left the chamber, she began to weep. She knew she had to keep away from her love from then on She knew the next time would be her neck Or worse So she sewed her story on the cloth she was holding In tear glittered gold thread And at the end, a warning No more meeting Or we're both dead That night, she took the nightingale out onto the balcony And threw it over to the place she knew her night would be and left So she didn't have to see them open it so she didn't have to see them for a last time. I'd let you spread your wings, I'd end your suffering. I'd give you anything I'd sing until my very last breath stopped. The night that night came out onto the balcony, looked across and then down, frowning. They picked up the package, opened it, and read the shroud. And for an hour after, carried the bird around very, very gently. Eventually, they had the nightingale locked up in a tiny golden coffin and tied it on their armour, as a reminder that love is always beautiful, even when it's dead, and as a reminder of the times when the nightingale set. I'd end your suffering I'd give you anything, I'd sing Until my very last breath stopped I'd let you spread your wings I'd end your suffering I'd give you anything, I'd sing Until my very last breath stopped Thank you very much. Have a lovely evening.
4: Next up, we have Tim Ralphs, who joined us at our Tragic Friends show in September 2014, where we gathered together some of the people who'd made Edinburgh 2014 so amazing and got them back together in one space to recreate some of the joys of our Edinburgh experience live on stage at the Dogstar in Brixton. Tim is a storyteller, You can find out more about him at www.timralphs.com and you can follow him at Tim on Twitter.
1: There's a beach on the island of Orkney and when the slate grey North Atlantic tide slides down the sand of the shore it reveals both an artist's palette and a pantry to the people who live near that beach. They go down to the rocks And they gather in the seaweed, the sea lettuce, they call it. They pick the tough, brown sea lettuce that you have to boil just right so it's not chewy like leather. They pick the turquoise blue stuff that's so tart you don't even need to pickle it in vinegar. The best stuff is the long, strong, fresh green strands. But that, that they leave. And this is why. There was a family that lived in that little village, a widow and her two daughters. The husband, the father, he'd been a fisherman like so many of the young men were. And then one day, a storm, a squall had come out of nowhere, had sunk his boat. When the two girls were small, the other fishermen used to say that they would see a seal, A seal with the dead father's eyes With the same blonde mop of hair on its head They would say that this was the father Swimming in the sea Waiting for them And when they were very small That sort of talk comforted the two girls And as they grew up Well it kind of seemed a little bit childish But they liked the other fishermen They'd often find their way And they grew into teenagers down to the beach They'd watch the boats come in There was one Fishermen in particular They'd sort of grown up watching him grow up And mostly grow out Every time he hauled his boat up onto the beach He would take off the seal skins and the shirts that he wore And then bare and hairy chested They'd watch as he mended his nets As he hauled in his catch And the elder and the younger sister would look at one another And would giggle as they watched him work And eventually he came to their house He courted the eldest daughter. She took after the father most. She had that same straggly blonde hair. She had that same kind of smile about her. The younger sister took after her mother. Her hair was straight and dark and her demeanour was quiet. And she never confessed her jealousy to her sister. She tried to smile as she watched them dancing together. She even tried to smile as her mother began to go on and on about the inevitable wedding. But one evening, she took herself by the cliff top path all the way up to the place where the cunning woman lived, just outside their village. And she said, as she entered that small hut, um, ''My mum is having a lot of trouble sleeping.'' Do you have a charm, a spell, that might ease her to sleep? And the cunning woman kind of looked up with one eye, and the crow that she kept on a perch in that hut squawked, and she said, I know just what you want. And she sang a song, a lullaby, and she only had to sing the first few bars, and the dark-haired girl could feel her eyelids falling heavy. The next day, she took her elder sister to the cliff path. And then down onto the beach, just as the tide had turned and was starting to roll in, and they sat on the rocks watching the water, watching the boats. And the younger said to the elder, let me comb your hair. (laughs) So the elder sister, she sat down in front of the rocks. The younger, she sat on the rocks, and she began to run her fingers through those tangled, blonde curls. And as she combed, she began to sing, "Hey ho,
5: hey ho, hey ho,
1: hey ho, hey ho, hey 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 into the amazement of the enchantment until she was as heavy as the damp sand she was lying on. And then the younger sister took those tangled blonde curls and the long, strong green strands of the seaweed and she platted the one into the other until that great rock boulder that she'd been sitting on was her sister's pillow. And then she went back to the cliff path, wandered up to the top, and watched as the first salt wave fell over her sister's body. Then she woke up, but she didn't have a chance to draw a breath to cry out before the second wave washed up and over her. And the dark-haired girl went back home. It was days before her sister's body was found, was brought in. The whole village was stricken with grief. She found she did not have to pretend when she cried at the funeral. And less than a year had passed before that fisherman came to their house again, began to court the younger girl. And there was not one minute, one moment of a day when she felt a twinge of guilt in her heart until they were in the midst of preparing their own wedding celebration. And then, then one evening, when they were walking together on the cliffside, she said, today, when I was out fishing, I saw a seal. I saw that seal with your father's eyes and that strange mop of blonde hair. And she said, I'm grown now. You don't need to tell me those silly, childish stories. And he said, no, it's not a story. And there was another seal with him. A younger one, a female, your sister's eyes, your sister's hair. And then it was as if her chest grew a briar patch. She could hardly breathe with the thought of what she had done. And she did not know who she could tell. She dared not tell her fiancé. She dared not tell her mother. She dared not go to the cunning wife once more and tell her. So instead, she went back to the beach The beach where the fishermen pulled up their boats. And just as the tide was coming in, she wrote with her foot the words of her confession. Making sure that as she did, each wave that came in would wash every word away. And salt baptized her toes. And as she walked away, she felt cleansed. The next morning the village seemed quiet She wandered down There was a crowd gathered about the beach Watching the boats The fishermen didn't seem to have gone out The waters had rolled away As she walked down onto the beach Everyone stepped back And though they had all been washed away by sea the night before Every word that she had written was plain Was clear in the sand that morning spelling out everything that she had done. And on the horizon, two seal heads bobbed in the waves, blonde of hair, bright of eye. There's a beach on Orkney, and when the slate-gray waters of the North Atlantic roll out, the people go down to the artist's pallet, the pantry, the bounty of the ocean, and they gather up the tough brown sea lettuce they gather up the turquoise blue but the fresh strong green strands they leave and now you know why thank you
4: tim robs everybody <laughs> our next performer also perform with us at our Tragic Friends Reunion Show. Bridie Lee Kennedy is a comedian, writer, and podcaster. You can find out more about her at www.bridyleekennedy.com and you can follow her on Twitter at Bridie LK. Put your hands together for Bridie Lee Kennedy!
2: Hi. Um, so as mentioned, I do host a sex and dating advice uh, podcast. I'm also my, like, primary uh, money-earning thing. I'm a writer, but my most regular gig is I'm a sex columnist, and th- which is a great job because um, they say write about what you love. Um, but... <laughs> It's also a bit problematic because I can't. I now am at this stage where, in most environments, I can't show any uh, weakness or uncertainty about sex Um, (laughs) because I'm an expert. Um, So, uh, fortunately, this feels like a safe space. So, I am going to tell my first sort of tragic tale um, of a time that uh, sex went horribly wrong for me. Um, If you talk to any of my readers, Bit of hush. Uh, <laughs> they think I've been flawless from the start. So, um, so I was dating a guy uh, a couple of years ago. Um, we'll call him James because that is his name and he is not here. Uh, <laughs> one, one of the benefits of moving internationally, I no longer change names in my stories. Um, so I was dating this guy, James. we have been seeing each other for a couple of weeks and things were going um, really well. And I actually really... Liked this one. Um, but it was a little odd because we, we hadn't slept together yet. And we were like two and a half weeks in. And I thought this was appalling, which tells you everything you need to know about me. Um, so James and I hadn't slept together yet. I didn't know why. And we hadn't talked about it. But it turns out, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, we hadn't slept together because James was actually still a virgin. And he he hadn't told me because he was really embarrassed about it. Um, But he had decided that he was ready to graduate beyond his virginity into that realm of stickiness, of which his friends spoke so reverentially. Um, Can't use the word stickiness in my columns. People do not like that. Uh, No, so he decided he was ready to graduate and that I was the girl to do it with. Yay, lucky me. Um, So one night, James and I were making out in the back of his mother's station wagon... Uh, kicking life goals for James and I Uh, so we're making out the back of his mother's station things are going all right, but a couple of things struck me as pretty odd now the first was that James approached touching a breast as though it was something that might burn him so he'd sort of like go in slowly and then (laughs) Uh, yeah a little disconcerting but the bigger problem was throughout this entire experience James was completely silent Like, he didn't make a single noise. If I could just get a show of hands of who would be creeped out in that scenario. Okay, yeah, most of you. Those of you who didn't, raise your hands, you're into some weird shit. Uh, If at any point you're getting naked with someone and you think to yourself, yeah, baby, keep it quiet, you've really got to wonder what that says about you. Possibly clubs for you guys. Probably in jail. Um, So I did what any normal person would do in that situation and I asked him to talk dirty to me. Now, I'm a nice girl, so I said please. Um, But James freaked out and, of course, he did. I mean, this was already a brand-new experience for him and I just threw on this massive spanner in the works. Now, I do need to point out at this juncture that uh, though James was a virgin, he wasn't unfamiliar with the concept of sex. Uh, in fact, as so many young men are, James was a voracious consumer of pornography. So when I said talk dirty to me, his brain threw up the only thing it had at its disposal. He looked me right in the eye and he said, in his most seductive tones, I want you to fuck me with your big black cock. <laughs> my I don't have one on me (laughs) we can uh, see if your mum keeps one in the boot of the car but if she does that's a whole other conversation Um, look perhaps suffice to say uh, that was not the night James lost his virginity Um, (laughs) turns out I want you to fuck me with your big black cock when said to a white woman is impossible to recover from (laughs) Um, so James and I, we actually, we actually broke up, um, which was a real uh, shame because I, I did actually really like this guy. Um, it just wasn't <laughs> quite the fairy tale first time that James was looking for, um, nor was it the fairy tale several hundredth time that I was looking for. Um, and this was just one of the many occasions that I found in, in adult life that the sort of fairy tale ending you're looking for doesn't actually turn out. Um, so I was very into fairy tales. As a kid, I liked how straightforward it was. Um, I think when you become an adult, that those stories don't kind of make as much sense to you. So a few years ago, I did start writing some fairy tales of my own, um, and I was wondering if I could read one to you guys. Is that all right? Yeah. 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 Um, I do have to ask that because um, I do a lot of comedy clubs, and I think if I offered to read a fairy tale they would throw drinks at me, so um, this, is, this is really nice. <clears throat> also, I should point out, I usually read this fairy tale in a really beautiful old book, and I couldn't find it. Um, so normally it's an affectation. This just looks like laziness. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. <clears throat> so this fairy tale is called The Sad-Eyed Boy. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess... All right, maybe not like Middleton beautiful, Kate that is not Pippa, nice girl, just not my taste but she did okay she smiled a lot and she laughed easily and she had the eyebrows of a young Brooke Shields or as one particularly evil stepsister pointed out, a young Tom Selleck either way, she was a princess and she went to many balls and enjoyed dancing with her friends and more than a few princes One of these princes was kind and danced well. He made the princess laugh and he asked her opinion on matters of importance and he chose her first to dance at every ball. One night, he asked her if she'd like a lift home in his pumpkin. But the princess was young and reckless and she liked to walk, so she demurred... (laughs) demurred. Yeah, it's a word I've only ever really seen written down. Um... (laughs) She said no gently. I think that's the definition. She left alone at midnight and as she descended the steps outside the ballroom, she tripped and stubbed her little toe, the one on her left foot. A boy stepped out of the darkness and caught her and held her steady. He wasn't a prince, but he had been waiting at the foot of the steps for her, for he said, though he wasn't fit to kiss her slipper, he hoped she may look past his station and take his hand. The station did not concern her, but his melancholy did. Still, out of kindness, she took his offered orchid, and she sniffed it. And in an instant, she was under his spell. The sad-eyed boy followed his princess home that night and moved quickly into her castle. He filled it with the orchids imbued with his scent, and from the moment the princess woke to the second she fell asleep, he was all she breathed in. He cursed every mirror on every wall, so when the princess gazed into them, they showed only her faults. They showed them, and they magnified them, until the princess could see nothing else, even when she closed her eyes. She closed her eyes often, and when she did, the sad-eyed boy would find her and take her hand and whisper that, though the mirrors told the truth, he loved her anyway. Every day, he drew closed another curtain on another of the castle's windows. And gradually, her vibrant rooms fell to perpetual dusk. One afternoon at 3pm, after many months inside the grey castle walls, a knock came at the door. The princess stirred, but the sad-eyed boy shook his head and rose instead. The princess listened as he opened the door, and she recognised the voice of the visitor. It was the kindly prince who had always asked her to dance first at the balls. The light from the open door snaked into the room in which she was seated and touched her little toe, the one on her left foot. It felt warm and strange, and she strained to hear the words being exchanged at the door. She heard the kindly prince say, Princess! And then a slam. The light scampered away from her toe and hid before the sad-eyed boy could catch it. But it wasn't gone. It was simply waiting for her just outside the door. Every day at 3pm, the kindly prince would knock on the princess's door. The sad-eyed boy didn't answer it and he forbade the princess from doing so with a silent look, but she began to wait every day for those knocks. Her little toe, the one on her left foot, would tingle, remembering its good fortune as the only part of her to be touched by light in many months. And her hands would sweat, as they did on so many hot, Gloved nights, when the kindly prince would choose her first to dance. Every day at 3pm, a knock at the door. Every day the princess told herself she would answer, but then she would breathe in, and the scent of the sad-eyed boy would make her lungs feel heavy. She would look in the mirror and see her grotesqueness through the castle's dusk. So she did not answer, and the sad-eyed boy would find her. And take her hand and tell her that he loved her Uh, until one day the princess did answer the door and the kindly prince was there so they like rode off on his horse to his way bigger way better castle where they got married and had loads of kids and she got to sleep with everyone on her celebrity safe list including early years Marlon Brando and that guy from Art Attack and they lived happily ever after the end yeah that's not totally true. Um, It's actually later years Marlon Brando, but people find that weird for some reason. (laughs) Okay, none of that's true. The prince knocked every day for weeks and then months and then years. And then one day, the prince stopped. 3pm came and went, and there was no knock at the door. The princess was distraught, and the sad-eyed boy was happy, or as happy as someone with those eyes can be. I mean, nominative determinism's a bitch. (laughs) The princess waited for the knock to come back, but every day the castle became more silent. Then one day, the princess slipped on a curtain... As she wandered the castle, it fell from the rings and the room, her bedroom, was filled with light. It hit first her little toe, the one on her left foot, and then it raced up her whole body. It bounced off the walls and hit the orchids, killing them instantly. It cracked every mirror in the house and it knocked the sad-eyed boy flat on his back. The princess watched her prison shatter and she knew what she had to do. She raced down the stairs, threw open the door and ran as fast as she could to the castle of her kindly prince. She skidded through his gates, stormed up his path and she saw... She saw him leaving the castle, holding the hand of another princess. This princess was also beautiful. Maybe not Middleton beautiful, but she did okay. And this princess carried lilies and a mirror that said nothing at all. And they lived happily ever after the end thank you so much
4: and here's another of the poems from lucy's lullabies to make your children cry show and this performance was one she gave at edinburgh in 2014
0: this poem's called bonfire juice thank you very much for having me I find a box of Lapsang Sushong, 10 years out of date, and I think of you. Like always. Do you remember the kitchen? Remember, lurching in, all rumpled from sleeping, and I was making bacon on the Aga and you gave me the biggest smile and... I'd never even seen an aga, apart from telly. but remember, I'm resourceful, and you were thirsty for tea, but all we could find was this box of old leaves that smelt a bit like the bacon, and this big, flat-bottomed thing, that when you boiled it, whistled. Like in a book. And I had never heard of a house with no kettle. I didn't know you could make tea without bags. I never used a saucer. Not for that. Do you remember the teapot? My mum's is made from I don't know, clay or something, but this one was silver. Real silver with all symbols carved round it in some language we'll never know and even back then I was far too old, but I swear at the time I thought it must be magic. And do you remember the tea. Every day, at eight and then eleven and then three, the tea, and we'd sit all solemn round this two big table, because we knew without being told this wasn't like glug from a mug tea, this tea was meant to be sipped. And remember the taste of it, and the way the cup was all hot in your hands, and the smell. Somewhere I was four, I learned how to read. We still lived in the country, and people used to burn their leaves. That smell do you remember that one afternoon we ran out of milk so we had to use whiskey and you called it bonfire juice and we sat out in the sun until way after there wasn't any sun left and we laughed do you remember well I still like Lapsang Souchong so I take the box and make the tea and drink a cup and think of you
4: Like
0: always thank you very much
4: guys enjoy the rest of your sadness our next performer was recorded in our first year of tragedy she was recorded at the leicester square theatre we've had her back many times but this is the first time she performed with us now because it's an early recording i warn you the audio is not as quality as our current standards I was in charge of the audio recording. It is my fault. And so I accept full responsibility. I hope you can enjoy the quality of the content. Nevertheless, despite the lack of crispness to the recording. But as I say, certainly this is not the work of Stephen Harvey, who does our recording. This is my work. And this is why he now does it instead of me. So this is Steffi Harrop. She's another storyteller. You can find out more about her at www.steffyharrop.co.uk and you can follow her on Twitter at Steffi Harrop.
3: Hello, I'm Steffy. I'm a storyteller and I should just say before I start, not all fairy tales have happy endings. So don't sue me. You were warned. Hmm. Anyone who thinks they can't cope, there's the door, there's the bar. I won't take it personally. Hmm. But for I those of you who are feeling brave, there was once a merchant in the City of London. Maybe you've heard of the City of London. It's a big place, grimy. And there was a merchant there, and he was rich. Now, he hadn't always been rich. When he was young, he had been <coughs> dirt poor, but he was obsessed. He was all about wanting and having, getting and keeping and so by the time he was in the middle of his life he was stinking disgustingly rich. Rich enough to buy a high handsome house in the middle of the city. Rich enough, I hope there aren't any romantics in the room, rich enough to buy himself a wife. (laughs) And not just any wife, a lady. A lady who wore a fine gold chain around her neck. Now you'd think with a house with the wife, he'd be happy, he could chill out, he'd relax, play some golf. But no, this man was obsessed wanting and getting, having and keeping. And it got worse as he got older. So soon he reached the stage where the sight of a copper coin in another man's hand actually caused him pain. I know. And... If the sight of a copper coin in another man's hand caused him pain, then how do you think he felt, this merchant, this miser, when he saw gold, precious gleaming gold, wasted on a chain to hang around a lady's neck? It drove him crazy, it drove him wild. And one night he couldn't stand it anymore. He stood up and he reached out and he tore that golden chain from his wife's neck. And she, being a lady and not used to being physically attacked, she fell down. And because she was very highly strong, in falling, she died. (laughs) It's a fairy tale, these things happen. (laughs) She was buried in a quiet churchyard in the middle of the grimy city of London. But she left behind her a daughter. And that daughter grew up. In a high, handsome house in the middle of the city, with just a box of her mother's old clothes for company, and a mind that moved like a clock ticking in an empty room. And so time passed, as time sometimes does. I don't know if you've noticed that. And as time passed, the merchant started to have bad dreams. It was It was as if someone was creeping into his bedroom in the middle of the night and whispering into his ear that there were men just outside in the dark, in the shadows. Men, thieves, robbers, burglars, who would take advantage of any unlocked door, any unbarred window, any crack in his defences, and they would be in his house. They would be rifling through his strongbox. They would be going through his money. Night after night, the merchant would wait, trembling, dripping with cold sweat, having palpitations. He would get up and pad around the house in his nightshirt, checking. Doors were all locked, windows all barred. Then one night, he had a different dream. One night, he dreamed that his young wife stood at the foot of his bed, as lovely as the day when they had been married, and she smiled and she came close and she whispered in the merchant's ear and then the merchant smiled too and then she bent down and kissed him on the cheek the very next day the merchant he left his house he went to that tiny churchyard in the middle of the city and he knelt down at her grave and all the neighbors thought wow we thought he was a right old sod but you know maybe he's got a heart after all one of those heartwarming stories where he gives all his money to orphans and stuff it's not (laughs) but that's what they thought (laughs) because what they couldn't see was that as the merchant knelt at his wife's grave he moved aside a little piece of soil and into the hole he tipped a handful of golden coins and then he covered them up again and was gone Every day for a year, the merchant went to the churchyard. He kneeled down at his wife's grave and he hid a few more golden coins there. Every day for a year. And on the last day of the year, he put his last handful of coins into the cold, dark earth, covered it over, and then thought, Now I'm safe. No-one will ever find my gold and rob me now. (laughs) And even as he thought that, the sun started to set over the city and the day grew dim. And suddenly, stepping out from behind her own grave, there she was again, his young wife, beautiful as the day they had been married. And she bent down again, and she kissed him coldly on the cheek, and she smiled. And the merchant with trembling fingers held out a golden chain and she took it and disappeared into the darkness and the merchant turned and walked away and so he didn't see his daughter wiping the flower from off her cheek and her hands <laughs> and rubbing a bit of mud from off the hem of her mother's dress and bending down and starting to dig the gold out <laughs> of the grain and fill her pockets. Now, people will tell you different things. Some people will tell you that she took ship that night for Paris and she danced and she drank and her life, though short, sadly, was brilliant and dazzling. There are those who will tell you that they saw her as an old woman in her box at the opera surrounded by handsome young men and covered in diamonds, which is the only way to go to the opera. But there are those who say, that the next morning in the city of London there was a woman who walked all by herself. And every time she met a man with no work, a woman with too many children to feed, or a child wandering, lost, she would take a gold coin out of her pocket and hand it over. And when at last there were no more coins left, She took a fine golden chain and dropped it into the hand of a shivering child who looked up with wide, confused eyes. Was this lady crazy? And then she turned the corner. And then she was gone. Thank you.
4: And to play us out, or to play us out until our theme tune starts, here is Martin Austwick, otherwise known as The Sound of the Ladies, performing with us at the Dog Star in Brixton in 2014. He performed this set of songs at Tragic Martyrs in 2014, it was recorded at the Dogstar in Brixton. And that is why he refers to martyrs in his setting up of the song. The song isn't strictly speaking a fairy tale, but it feels to me like a fairy tale. It's a kind of reimagining of reality, but a kind of magical reimagining. And so I thought that it was a perfect way of ending today's show. You can find more martin at www.martinzoltzostwick.com you can hear his music at www.thesoundoftheladies.com and you can follow him at Martin martinostwick on twitter
5: uh, so this is a song about uh, this, is, this guy isn't really a martyr but I, I've mart- martyred him in my song it's about uh, a guy called joseph basiljet people know who joseph basiljet is yeah. Uh, someone want to praise you for me <laughs> so he's the guy that uh, was instrumental in rebuilding the, the, or extending the Victorian sewer system and um, he wasn't really a martyr, I mean he had a pretty good life he was knighted and all that kind of jazz uh, but he, um, he did have a breakdown in, in his 20s I think that's as close as he gets to martyrdom in my song um, I martyr him because he has a, a sort of like petty male epilepsy episode and is trapped in a dream world of an infinite sewer Uh, Which, uh, which is uh, so he did it. He wasn't a martyr himself, but I martyred him. The song is called "10,000 Letters of Love," and if you like the, the, um, the thing, the video, you can see it online as well. Um, "10,000 Letters of Love" is the name of the song, Uh, and in a second, I'm going to, I'm going to start. I've never stepped Into the downpour I stand between raindrops Hearing the heartbeats and breathing The petrichor, breathing the petrichor The sultry sky sent me Ten thousand love letters You never knew all I needed was you But how could I know And how could she know me When I never once met her I never once met her I once met Basil Jet, the Prince of Affections. He loved the glory, but hated the attention from ten thousand plumbers and their endless questions. They honored and botched him. Imperial style for reflecting your pitter-pat tears in a smile. You weren't even worthy a cursory mention. You'd not have been grateful for the attention. You'd not have been grateful for the attention. I wonder whether I'd have liked him better If he'd shut his mouth and just listen Some more he'd smell petrichor, petrichor, petrichor And his body would ripple and fall to the floor And what did he dream But a labyrinth of brick Where he'd roam in a rain 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 rain Of ten thousand tributes From the city above Ten thousand letters that is of love. Stand between raindrops, hearing the heartbeats and breathing. The petrichor, breathing, petrichor. Thank you.
4: As I said earlier on, for more tragic fairy tales, come to tragic winter at the hackney attic on saturday the 28th of february it's going to be a really excellent night the lineup is immense i mean i'm really really excited to see what happens and to hear what happens at that show i'm going to be doing something i have no idea what it is but i'm excited to try and work out what it is so i can share it with you guys tickets are already available five pounds in advance £7 on the door tell your friends say you're coming on Facebook buy tickets in advance or don't do whatever you want to do but that's my plea my pledge my request from you guys and there'll be some more tragedy next week on the podcast but for now the tragedy is over This podcast has been produced by me and put together by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionaries.
1: It's time to go
3: It's time time to to go. go.
4: It's time to go. It's time to to go. go.